Greetings, greetings, greetings. Best and brightest, I am Jay Severin at Giant Pod Pundit. This is Invasion of the Giant Pod Pundit. And it's episode 56, entitled 2020 Democrat Donkeys. Excelsior. of the giant pod pundit with Jay Severin. And they're off. Yeah, they certainly are. It is the Democrat stakes. 18 horses asses, ladies and gentlemen, on a slow track. There they are in the gate and they're off. And that is what it's going to feel like. Every news cycle, every day, as sooner uh, as soon as Labor Day arrives. <laughs> Pardon me. Just why Labor Day is an undeniable marker on the presidential campaign road, nobody knows or hasn't told me. Really doesn't matter. What matters is that in a world of civics gone mad, like the rest of the world, we're about to witness and very possibly affect. Hmm? Perhaps the most exciting, the most critically important presidential re-election battle in our nation's history. It is virtually impossible, even for those of us who regard ourselves as something of a wordsmith, it is virtually impossible to capture in few words the profundity, the mega-historical ramifications of either a Trump re-election, and a second term, which, as well they know, down at Republican National Committee headquarters, which second term could set the table for, (coughs) pardon me, a conservative majority in both houses of Congress, an authentically conservative United States Supreme Court for a generation, anchored in Trump's second term by perhaps two more justices being chosen and also stemming from the Trump's second term fundamentally conservative policies that will work so well that we will actually be able to defeat the habitually whining Democrats before they open their mouths because Trump's policies are what American voters want. And we're at a point that most American voters don't even know what the donkeys stand for. But what they do understand of it, they don't want. That is why it is difficult to characterize the historic widespread political and cultural changes a Trump second term would mean. And I know you say, well, you, why get your knickers in a knot? about this now. It's it's 2019. Yeah, but if you trust me to tell you stuff from the political inside, trust me when I tell you this. As of this Labor Day, there, there aren't enough hours in the day. 
This is how I came into the business. I started in the business for the world's most accomplished political consultant who had done so much in America, <clears throat> as he said in a book that someone wrote about him, he ha had to branch out to other countries because, quote, I got kind of tired of seeing the same guy slide into third, end quote. Even by the time I joined David Garth, he was far more engaged in his international campaigns. Uh, in Europe, in Israel, in South America, <clears throat> pardon me, then, then he seemed to be with the domestic campaigns, which were handled by, you know, his associates, his hand-picked, trained uh, uh, squad, of which I was about to become one. Well, I mean, I, I, I think back on that, and I think about getting in a year before a campaign. And you know, everything changed. My life changed. All these decisions changed. I remember that the the, the uh, brilliant young kid from Harvard who was, I think, maybe about two weeks older than I, was doing the pre-interview of me in New York. And he said, look, uh, you know, he, he looked at me. And I was outside a lot, you know, I, I, you know, I did a lot of outside things and it was summertime and, you know, I was finishing my master's program and I, yeah, I did a lot of sunbathing and surfing and softball and, you know, I, and he looked at me and he said, look, uh, you know, we don't spend much time in the Hamptons here. You know, we often have to work on weekends and nights. Are you okay with that? Now, I don't know what was I supposed to say. I mean, of course, I said, oh, I have no problem with that. Good thing, because had I said I had a problem with it or showed the slightest hesitation, my entire life would be different and worse. Um, because my job there, my first real job in politics for David Garth, at the time the world's most famous and accomplished political consultant. That was it. That was that was like saying, it was being in Hollywood and saying that I had worked as an executive assistant to Steven Spielberg, you know. So good thing I answered it correctly. Problem was I lied because yes, I did mind. Yes, I did mind. I was really wondering whether they, you would give you like Friday afternoons off in July and August, so you could go, so you could get to the Southampton train station in time to start drinking and chasing. Because I was very much into that lifestyle. I'll have you know. Well, look, these people will work so hard. I'm telling you, the only people that work harder than people connected with the campaign are um, interns, medical, are young doctors who are interning or like in their first year of residency, where they work like 70 hours at a clip without sleeping. I mean, that's where I learned to not sleep and also not to bitch and to do my job. And that was that. And everyone else was doing it too. So I wasn't going to get singled out for praise. It was a baptism by fire. I went from living the life of, 
a single, what was I, 22, 23, 4, I don't know, year old, uh, and it, you know, doing what I wanted, all of a sudden thrown into this mosh pit of uh, brilliant Jewish New York kids who were uh, all smarter than I and harder working than I, um, and at least at the start they were. And uh, at the end, it was very different. Two, two of the people that interviewed me for the job are dead and have been dead for 10, maybe longer years. That's another story. I'm just trying to tell you that this Labor Day, it would be like the toy business with Macy's, you know, and the Christmas. You know, the, the toy season kicks off for Macy's long before you see Sanity Claus in the Macy's uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade. This is it. This is the time of year they make money. This is when they have to make the toys, make the toys, make the toys. Well, if you work on a political campaign, this is when you make the votes, make the votes, make the votes. And everything kicks off in just a few days here in America. That's why I talk about it that way. <clears throat> Pardon me. However, I mean, I'm talking about Trump's second term and what it would mean, but of any fair pre-analysis I have for 2020 also must include, of course, however the nature and magnitude of the great troubles Democrats find themselves in, a history-making record 23 candidates at its high point, which was actually its low point, but it's why we go ahead and have the vote anyway, right? It's why we play the game. I think that on paper, at least, it is still possible. A Democrat savior is going to emerge to make a strong round of it against President Trump. I cannot yet tell you, because I don't know. I don't know who that's going to be. But it would be foolish to rule out our most horrible nightmares. I would love to cradle you in my arms and say, wake up, wake up, it's only a bad dream. Michelle Obama is definitely not running. There's no, no way, there is zero chance Michelle Obama is running. I can't tell you that. I would like to cradle you in my arms further and say, wake up, it's only a dream. Hillary Rotten Clinton can't run. Don't worry. It's not going to happen. There's zero chance. Or, I don't count this out, the late entry of an entirely non-politician, most very likely a celebrity with Hollywood roots, I'm thinking, and have personally been worried for 20 years about the prospect of her ability to exploit what has become our Dancing with the Stars presidential campaigns, Oprah. Oprah Winfrey. Laugh if you like. I do, hysterically. Because I know that while it is we who benefited from the highly unlikely election of a former businessman slash TV star, it will be virtually impossible to get that genie back into the bottle, if you, you know what I mean. Turnabout is fair play, 
And as much as Democrats wail in public, as much as they wail in public that Donald Trump wasn't a real candidate, he isn't a real president, they secretly envy us to the point they can hardly breathe. Their greatest wish for the rest of their lives would be to find in a railroad station, uh, on a TV program, uh, at a titty bar, at any other place, they might imaginably, imaginably enable them to discover their star. When that person pulls, uh, you know, pulls on the jacket, not the green jacket, but the red jacket of the Democrat Party of Communism, and when that person starts to poll well and turns out to be an animal trainer, a bicycle repairman, or an African-American woman who has sold one billion books and has one billion TV viewers and one billion dollars who could run the strongest campaign against Trump ever without really ever opening her mouth. So, yes, I worry about that. I worry about the prospect of Oprah, especially now. Oprah! Oprah! Of course I worry about her. I worry about everything. I worry about Trump's health. I worry about Mike Pence. Splendid fellow. Splendid fellow. Splendid fellow. Right? But frankly, and we all know this, right? Not Mr. Excitement. Now, I do feel a little hypocritical saying that after, you know, what I said about our presidential campaigns and all. But it's true, isn't it? It's a hell of a thing either way. If you don't have someone who's Elvis Presley, you have a problem. <clears throat> if you do have someone who's Elvis Presley, you have a problem. Things are in flux right now. Our country has never seen something like this. Nobody knows, other than we, of course. Nobody knows what's happening right now. How do you look back at the Trump election and draw a lesson from that? It's too early to draw any big lesson, but the Democrats, this is it. They have to draw their lesson and take their shot. If we're going to really change the course of history in our nation, and I, I mean, we have to, I don't mean that as a, as like a crusade. I'm just saying if we're going to save the Constitution, literally save the country we live in, so that it's not Morocco in 20 years. Uh, and I could name any other shithole country, uh, quoting the President of the United States. If we're going to save our Constitution, we must not only successfully succeed Donald Trump's second term, but ensure that we have a dynamic, attractive, compelling message and messenger as a candidate in 2024. And while I know the Trump base is fond of Mike Pence, he is, no fault of his own, you know, suffering from a serious charisma deficit. He would require a very risky charisma transplant in order to do this. Again, I apologize for verifying that this is the state of our national politics these days, but it, it is what it is. Fascinating is the prospective battle would be, you know, how would you handle this? 
How would you ask Mike Pence to step step aside for some star Republican candidate, whoever that might be? Shall we, may I say, shall we table that matter for right now, for the moment, in as much as we do have the immediate fate of our world on our plate right now with this 2020 battle? To that point, as much as I worry about Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, or an Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey type candidate, as aforementioned, I'm also deeply apprehensive about how well Michelle Obama could do. And she wouldn't really even have to open her mouth. She could run a total Rose Garden strategy. All of her stuff could be prepackaged. Uh, all of her events could be staged completely differently than they're being done right now. I mean, that's it's a, sh- it's, it's a shame. When I look at it, even though they're Democrats, I can't believe they're not doing this as well as, as we can do it. Um, but Michelle Obama wouldn't have to open her mouth. She could run a Rose Garden strategy and start with 45% of the vote. And if she could run without opening her mouth, it would be an enormous blessing for everyone. I sense she doesn't really have the intestines for a national campaign, which she must know. I mean, after all, she has in-house counsel, right? Michelle must either have natively or have been given to her, drummed into her, the sense that Maybe a national campaign is not the best thing for you or our family right now. I mean, after all, we do have a $15 million cottage, $15 million cottage in the vineyard that we uh, have to, uh, you know, that we have to take care of. It's in season. Uh, Michelle has to know that the Republican attack machine would be fueled by muscle and money never before conceived in the arena of politics, if she ran. Republicans would, and certainly should, if they had to, spend $1 billion, $2 billion, $5 billion, $10 billion or more against her, and 90% of that money would be spent funding and fueling an absolutely unprecedented personal attack campaign that would leave Michelle looking like whatever unfortunate creature is chasing Wiley E. Coyote ends up holding the stick of dynamite. Boom! And you see, like the person's all tattered and burnt around the edges. The only thing that looks normal is their eyeballs. It would be the greatest possible spectacle fit for the Colosseum of Rome in this or any time in history. I almost want to see it happen, just to witness it. But as I mentioned, I'm a worrier, and I just can't bring myself to be smug about an Obama White House bid. Then there is, of course, everyone's favorite. Now, why am I and why am I doing this? Why am I not looking forward? I am looking forward. The the specter of Michelle Obama and Hillary Clinton, and the great white hope or Great Brown Hope or Great Black Hope. This triad of either Michelle Obama, Hillary Clinton, or 
somebody from Hollywood, Oprah, 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 Oprah Winfrey, or somebody else that checks the boxes. You know, this is defining everything that everyone is doing. Believe me when I tell I I know the Republican Party is not scared of the candidates they have, but they're kind of scared witless about the candidates they could have. They don't tell you that, but there is a lot of uh, sort of backward respect for the Democrats uh, in the White House. Uh, and by backwards, I mean they respect the Democrats uh, indirectly by saying, well, look at who they have now. They they are too smart to, to think they could win with those people. There must be other people willing to step in and run. And we already see this joker, Tom Steyer. I don't know who he is. I don't think he's going to be a factor, but uh, he could be a spoiler. He could be like a Ralph Nader, you know, for the uh, run third party. I don't know what he's going to do. I know that he was walking around the street somewhere drinking a beer two weeks ago, and all of a sudden now he's a candidate for president of the United States. He went out and he used his money to set up fund, professional fundraising machines, perfectly legal. I don't mean literal machines. I mean like political machines. You hire people professionally to be fundraisers. It's done by the Rockefeller Foundation every day. It's done by everybody. So he uses his money. Oh, did I mention he sold... He started and sold his startup hedge fund for $36 billion. Have we reminded ourselves recently that a billion dollars is a thousand million? $36,000 million. So he decided, why not? You know, I've, I've got this new, I've got this new age Democrat candidacy all figured out. I'll wait as long as I want to wait. I'm not going to go through any uh, nitpicking primaries or anything like that. I'm just going to wait, and then I'll I'll raise my own money. And then the other thing I have to do for the Democrats is comply with their uh, debate criteria. So I'll go out and buy polls. And he's doing that. I mean literally buying polls. He's going to places that don't do universities that don't do polls. And he goes, you do. Here's a check for $10 million. I've just endowed a, a poll ongoing at your college. The first one's going to be the one that shows that people will vote for me if I'm on the ticket. So he just buys his way in. The Republicans stay up at night late worrying about that because they're worriers too. Now, there is, of course, everyone's favorite boogie woman, the dark horse candidate. Uh, I'm not going to say anything here. Hillary Rotten Clinton. Everybody has a theory about Hillary. I am, as you might imagine, asked pretty often whether I believe she is out of politics for good. I will tell you that when I'm, I'm out with my family, we're, we go to the movies, we're at the mall, we're doing something, and if, if people recognize me, and which, you know, they generally do, 
they'll, they'll we'll we'll chat a bit and their their first i mean the first question and then the second question is second by about 10,000%. The first question I'm asked is, you think Hillary will ever run again? And what that tells me, obviously, is that people are not only interested, but they come by their interest by way of being afraid. They're afraid that that witch, that bitch, would run again. And, uh, you know, is she out for good? Might she run? After 25 years plus, uh, my life in politics and media, I've learned there isn't any magic. Well, okay, there's black magic. Um, things are generally as they appear, at least at first. Things are generally as they appear, which delivers me firmly back to my always, maybe you've heard this, maybe we've talked about this, in another incarnation. It brings me back to my Hillary calculus. It's never changed a molecule in 30 years that I've been covering this appalling wildebeest. And here it is. Will Hillary run? This is a little tiny test of three questions. You ask yourself. You don't need anyone else. One asks one's own self these three questions. Question number one, will Hillary run again? Okay. Does she want it? Does she want it? Does she want to be president? Does she want it? Answer, only more than life itself. Right? Two, does she, does she, Believe she can win. Answer. Dude, I mean, seriously? This is someone who thinks the Russians with Facebook ads and people from Venus went door to door sprinkling Republican fairy dust on voters in key states. This woman is three-quarters nuts. And she knows something about nuts. She's got them. Does she believe she can win? Let me ask you a question. Do you think she believes she lost? Do you think she believes that she lost? Do you think Hillary Clinton believes right now or for a moment, ever, since that election, for a moment, ever, if she lives to be 900 years old, do you think Hillary Clinton ever let herself think for one minute that she lost that campaign? Dude, seriously? Question three. Is there something that prohibits her from running? No. And I actually do this. I mean, last week I met someone at the movie theater. We were, I, was waiting, I was waiting to get my popcorn. And I met a guy, I'd met him before, uh, and he said, so what do you think, what do you think? You think Hillary's going to jump in? And I said, well, let's quick take the, you know, Hillary calculus test. Does she want it? Does she believe she could win? And is there something prohibiting her from running? No. And there you are. I'm not saying she'll run. 
I am, however, pointing out that by my formula, only fools counter down and out. As for the rest of the field, such as it is, as the Democrat donkeys make the first turn on Labor Day, Biden continues by the skin of his teeth. He also has even them Botoxed, believe it or not. He glides along play-acting at being the entitled, eventual Democrat nominee. Thus far, one-third of Democrats nationwide are ready to vote for him, and they have been quite candid with reporters and pollsters saying why. And it's the same every time. Because we need to beat Trump. What, what about Joe Biden? Why are you voting for Joe Biden, though? Because we need to beat Trump. Perhaps it's just me. But if you have been in national politics for 40 years, including a very recent stint as Barack Hussein Obama's vice president, and voters of your party are asked what quality or accomplishment or policy for which you are famous makes them want to vote for you, and they say, forget that shit. I don't care. I just want somebody, anybody that could beat Trump. And this is exactly what Biden supporters have been telling pollsters. The nice thing about support like that is it's free. You don't have to do anything to get it. The not so nice thing about that kind of support is that it is based on a whole lot of nothing. It is gossamer. It is quicksilver. It's gone tomorrow morning when you wake up. Hey, who took my 31%? I left it right here by the bed. And when voters detect that somebody, anybody else, has one molecule greater chance in their minds to be Trump, they will trample Biden getting out of his house to go vote for the new fellow, the new chick, the new trans. So this is the circumstance in which Biden automatically enjoys one-third of the Democrat vote for now. I mean, that's it. He's the moderate. Old Joe, Uncle Joe, is standing against the AOC wing of the Democrat Party. And that's how it's viewed. And that's where his support comes from. For now. And don't look now, but as they reach the Labor Day turn, one horse's ass that is gaining very furiously on the left is Harvard's first ever law school professor of color. A professor of color, Elizabeth Warren. What color is that, you wonder? Well, that would appear to be the whiter shade of pale tribe. Her desperate identity politics aside, Squaw Warren is eclipsing uh, the California raisin-wrinkled socialist Bernie Sanders in most polling. I mean, that's the fight underneath the fight. That is interesting. On the undercard right now, Warren and Biden have squared off against each other directly. They're both trying to make it look like a two-man race between themselves, uh, between himself and Biden. And that's going to intensify on this uh, dry track in the next few days. It would be it's going to be fun and important to watch after Labor Day, especially the uh, state voter polls in New Hampshire, because New Hampshire is regarded as a home state for both Warren. See, I mean, New Hampshire, half of New Hampshire gets Boston media. 
when they turn on the television, turn on the radio. They are the, uh, about 40%, is it, of the state gets, they're hearing Boston-based media and news, so to speak. Um, and that's true of Vermont with New Hampshire as well. So they're both considered native sons, if you will. Uh, I think Elizabeth Warren wants to stay away from that, you know, calling herself a son. <laughs> well, anyway, this is how the Democrat field is beginning to carve itself uh, into a picture. Biden will not soon do worse with Democrats than 30%. I think he's got that for now, but he has a target on his back. It is significant that Warren seems to be beating Bernie, but it only means something if she could start to cut into Biden's lead and make it appear or make it a fact that it's a two-man race. She needs that she needs the news anchors to come on and say, "Well, you know what? It's really looking like a two-person race right now." between uh, front-runner Joe Biden and in second place. She desperately wants and needs for this to be seen as a two-way race. Uh, Biden, the moderate, and Warren, the progressive Native American. Bernie is Bernie, and he'll always have a base. The question is, as Labor Day does historically serve as a kickoff point for the next year election, Bernie must show that he has the same stuff that made him the Democrat darling four years ago. He too needs to make this a two-person race, but he needs to be in it. Uh, Enough of Bernie's base. Will enough of Bernie's base, returning voters and newfound little socialists be enough to slap Warren back down and stop her momentum? It shouldn't be that much of a problem for Biden given his sharp wit and exciting speaking style. I expect Joe Biden to just electrify everyone. (laughs) And finally, for this chapter, where and what of Kamala Harris? As the whistle blows, as we round the Labor Day turn. It's funny, I've been in this business all my life. By the way, did I mention I was elected by fifth grade civics club's founding president? and founding publisher of the newspaper. I wasn't sure I mentioned that. I wanted to make a point to mention at some point. Anyway, in this business all my life, and it's a funny thing. I'm sure other businesses have this too. And that's not so much funny, but it's frightening, I'm sure, to many uh, to have to run for high office. The funniest thing, uh, this notion of an instinct that you share with others and in your business. And it's almost at once shared by the, the small group of people that you really admire. The sharpest observers of American politics are at any given moment, a group of not more than perhaps, I don't know, a dozen, maybe half that, who truly know what is happening and what is likely to happen before it happens. And uh, as example, who do I, when I'm going through a room and I don't need to watch that segment, so I've got like three or four monitors going and I'm flashing the audio to like what I have to listen to. When I go through a room and Carl Rove is on the air, I listen to what Carl has to say. It doesn't mean because he's the smartest. 
It means that so many people believe he's the smartest that it becomes accepted wisdom the moment that Carl says it. And that's because he's got this, you know, he's got this throw weight. He's got this heft when he speaks. He's got credibility. So just like the president can start uh, a, a stock market crash uh, about, by, you know, a comment about the Chinese, there, there are, you know, maybe a dozen people that can start a political crash just by mentioning something. Carl is one of them. Now, I should have mentioned first my um, former... Well, my dear, dear friend, my dia, dia friend, and former partner in some endeavors. Uh, I say that because we weren't partners. He was partners with Mark Penn, uh, Penn and Schoen. Mark Penn and Douglas Schoen, the most brilliant pollsters in our nation's history. And they're still young guys. When, when Mark Penn is on television, I stop and listen. When Doug Schoen is on TV, I like rewind it and DVR it and listen to it five times because Doug will tell you exactly what he's thinking. And what he's thinking is what is. When he predicts something, it's going to happen. So there are those people that you have to listen to and with whom you share a certain sense. And we do check in with each other. Uh, I can't tell you much more about that. I'm not going to, but at any given moment, a group of a dozen or so of us, yeah, I'm one of them, um, truly know what's happening before it happens. And when that happens, there's a kind of universal buzz that takes place uh, among us who do this for a living. You know, one night you go to bed, you think you know what's going on, and you awaken with this instinctive sense that while you were asleep, something is something changed. Well, something changed. We can't always point to exactly what it is, but a number of us feel uh, seem to feel it uh, this, within the same day or two. Such has been the case with Kamala Harris. Yes, I know the conventional wisdom, which, by the way, is neither conventional nor wise. Conventional wisdom is rather like Captain Kangaroo, who was neither a military man, nor a marsupial. In any case, with Kamala Harris, I know the conventional wisdom is that she did not have a great debate last time. She didn't. And she's been recently thought to be stumbling and contradicting herself at her public appearances. I think she's been doing that too. And yes, I think that has a cumulative effect. Certainly part of it. But the other part is this weird instinct that several of us uh, with whom I've spoken in the last two days, uh, we seem to have this weird instinct. Um, you know, the moment you start to feel this way, you only know when you talk to one or two or three or five other people that you feel you get a chill up your spine, but you know that you're watching something develop. Um, you just wake up, we, a lot of us woke up with a sense that Kamala Harris is over. Over. And I can tell you that among the smartest money in politics right now, it's rather like, you know, uh, setting the, the betting line for professional uh, football games. The line on Kamala Harris has changed. The feeling, it's just a feeling, but it's, it's shared by the best and brightest who work in this industry, which is a very weird and very small industry. 
It's almost overnight morphed into the same opinion. Kamala Harris will be lucky if she hangs around long enough to check the boxes and tries to get on the ticket as vice president. Her once great promise, such as it was, somehow, in a mixture of underperformance and a lot of people say that her phony laugh and that she doesn't know know anything and she says, well, I'm willing to talk about that. Next question. Okay, Okay, you're willing to talk about it? How about right now? How about I waited seven hours in the rain to talk to you because I obviously support you, but I need to know where you stand on whether or not I'll continue to get my social security check. And your answer to everything is, I think I'd be willing to open a discussion on that. Those are her words, you know. In every, no matter what she's asked, I'm, I'm willing to open a discussion on that. And she, that's shit that you said. That's the shit that people like me told you to say 25 years ago. Because with the media the way it was and the electorate the way it was, you could get away with it. When Kamala Harris says, uh, I'm certainly, I think it's time we opened a discussion on that. She, I saw her do this the second day of her campaign this year with guns. What about it? What about confiscating guns? What about mandatory buybacks? What about no more AR-15s? What about, and she listened and then she said, she had a big smile. And she said, I'm going to tell you something. I think it's time that we opened a discussion on that. Next, people are seeing this. And her great promise is being peed away somehow by this underperformance and maybe just the passage of time. Um, Like, when is the last time we heard anything about Kamala Harris? Anything good, I mean. I'm not saying I know I'm right. And if I'm right, I'm not saying she's out of it. Again, if she gets on the ticket, she has a reasonable expectation of 16 years in the White House, mathematically speaking. Just sharing with you this instinct that I do not have alone. I have seen this ghost move through a pack of candidates before, on both sides. It's the ghost that taps NFL rookies on the shoulder and says in their ear, Coach wants to see you. Bring your playbook. In that instance, you've just been told your football career is over, at least with this team. I do have a sense, and I know I share it with some others whose opinions I believe you would greatly respect, that this ghost has tapped Kamala Harris on her shoulder. Again, with the consolation that she may have the right number of minority boxes checked to win the minority VP sweepstakes. As we have followed this together, I, I, I have a, a point, there was a point after the last debate that the Democrat field would shrink before the September debate. And by that time, the debates convened, we were in a game of lethal musical chairs, if you re- remember my commentary on that. It really came down to a, a game of deathly musical chairs in which when the music stops, there will be sufficient, there will be insufficient chairs for all the Democrat asses seeking one. I figured at the time those chairs were for Biden, Sanders, Warren, and Harris in that order. 
I believe now, I predict now, the action is now a two-way race. The real action right now is the two-way race to challenge Biden as the frontrunner. That is to say, between Sanders and Warren to take on Biden. But I no longer believe there are four chairs on that stage. When the piano player takes off, the stage manager will have three chairs on that stage. Three. Count them. And Kamala Harris, fully expecting one, will sit down hard, but not on a chair. God willing, no one's ankle or leg will be beneath her when she flops. You don't want to see anybody hurt. Uh, that is it for the moment, best and brightest. Thank you so much for your attentions, being here, and your mentions and follows via Twitter, where I will be as usual uh, all the time, throughout the week and the weekend too. Uh, I'm not going anywhere for Labor Day. The shop is open. The campaign we're cutting the ribbon on the front lawn of the campaign. So, as this campaign really takes off, it's going to be a lot of fun. The first legitimate stage of a real horse race. I know you're going to love it almost as much as I'm going to love it better than anybody else. Original insight. Original insight. Guaranteed. Or your money back. In fact... Double your money back. Please do, as many of you have, ask your followers to give me a try. Um, such will ensure the viability of, of this fledgling but enormously patriotic venture. See you right now, as ever, on Twitter. Our private email between you and me for your comments on the show, questions, comments, complaints, uh, uh, invitations to orgies, anything. Uh, uh, but uh, remember, you can also send what you'd like to have me read on the show and attach your name to. So that private email address for the podcast is all lowercases, I'm sorry, all lowercase, no spaces, J-T Severin, that's J-T-S-E-V-E-R-I-N at gmail.com. Complaints, criticisms, observations, invitations to orgies or almost as good shooting ranges. Thank you. I'm your giant pod pundit, Jay Severin, saying Excelsior.